You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 72, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is Dr. Philip Eskew. Dr. Eskew is a family practice physician who has his own DPC practice, also practices correctional medicine, which is new for my show. He also has his GAD degree and an MBA because two professional degrees is not nearly enough. Most notably, Dr. Eskew runs DPC Frontier, which is a very commonly used website for people who are looking for direct primary care practices. But because of his legal degree, it's a place where he also has a lot of resources for direct primary care physicians and patients, but mainly for physicians, on legal problems and issues, contract law, and sort of dealing with federal regulations when it comes to medicine that anyone in practice would need to know, and certainly people in private practice who are trying to operate without having a large system and teams of lawyers behind them. It's a way of at least navigating a lot of the commonly asked questions. In addition to talking to Dr. Eskew about his career and sort of the role as having a JD and MD and MBA all combined and what that has done for his career in entrepreneurship, uh, we're going to discuss the transparency issue. And I've seen a lot of physicians write about this and talk about this. And those who are looking for more of a market-based approach to medicine are really promoting this as if it's the next great thing. And I think it's important to sort of be a little bit more tempered in our excitement of having an executive order from the Trump administration or potentially a law passed by Congress that guarantees price transparency within a hospital system. Without a doubt, it's very important to have transparent prices and an idea when you're a customer, or in this case a patient, coming for a procedure, because many of them are known when you come in to enter the hospital system, but not always, uh, that you have some idea of what the cost is. But of course, as we discussed in the show many times before, the cost of something is very different than the price. And also important to note that the amount paid to the hospital system, or in this case, maybe it's a manufacturer of devices or the pharmaceuticals, is not paid entirely by the patient. And so because of that reason, the patient generally doesn't have as much stake in the cost, or at least doesn't feel like they have much choice. And so any measures that are brought forth to compel transparency of prices from the entities that are charging uh, is going to be fairly unsuccessful. It's not going to yield the results that people hope. There's not going to be significant price shopping by most patients because, for the most part, patients are not uh, price sensitive And for the most part. Uh, there are some who have HSAs. There are some who pay cash, but it's a very small percentage of patients. And until that number changes, there will be very little impetus for the people who are involved in the transparency debate to actually provide useful transparent prices because they are rarely, if ever, competing on true price. It is possible that insurance companies could suddenly start demanding people look up prices ahead of time to find the lowest cost alternative in their town. Uh, so if you're in a larger place, obviously, that may be uh, something that really could give a monetary reward. I know insurance companies have looked at that uh, at times. But in, interestingly, as we talked about in the last episode, you will notice more and more insurance companies are involved closely with pharmacy benefit managers, with hospital systems, with physician groups. And so when it comes to pricing and cost, the insurance companies may not have 
a cost-lowering strategy that one might assume an insurance company would have. Dr. Eskew also goes into the aspect that I had never thought of before, but is the litigation aspect of the transparency laws or executive orders in that there'll be a lot of litigation and probably the effectiveness of these provisions will be really, really delayed uh, being implemented to any meaningful endpoint. The links we talk about in the show and all the show notes can be found at theparadox.com slash 072. I'd encourage you, as always, to continue sharing this show with your friends and colleagues and family. I'd also encourage you to send me show ideas, as I'm always looking for new things that are happening in medicine that would be of interest to me, and by extension, you too. So please send those to the Paradox Show at protonmail.com. You can also link to that through the main website at theparadox.com. So without further ado, Dr. Felix Skew and our discussion on whether hospital pricing transparency will even help. Enjoy. Well, welcome. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Philip Eskew. He's a direct primary care physician in front, uh, for Frontier in Wyoming. He's also vice president of clinical development and a general counsel at Proactive MD, a general counsel at the DPC Coalition. And because he's not busy enough, he's also a site medical director at Horizon Health in Wyoming, which is a correctional medicine. So Dr. Eskew, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Larson. It's good to be here. Well, I've, I know you've, uh, you're familiar with the show a little bit in that we talk a lot about direct primary care. We talk about alternatives to um, various types of medicine and people who are doing innovative and sort of entrepreneurial things. And certainly you have your finger in a lot of pies. So could you just go through your background? I mean, the, you have, you have uh, some, you're someone who's accumulated a lot of paper, is what I always say. You have a DO, a JD, and an MBA. So you've, you've gotten a lot of... Um, professional degrees. Could you just briefly go through your background and sort of the order and why you sort of got each of those three degrees? Sure. Um, so I, I, I grew up around parents who were physicians. My mom's a pathologist. My dad's a family doc. And they usually uh, complained about issues that were sort of ancillary to medicine around the dinner table. And I, I guess I kind of picked up that bug when I was little. And I thought, yes, I want to practice medicine, but I want to be uh, even even happier about it than they are. And if I want to make a difference, it's going to require some detours so that I understand these other other areas. And uh, undergrad, I was a chemistry and accounting major. The accounting wasn't enough, so I did the MBA, and that wasn't enough, so I did the law degree and, and finally felt like, okay, now I've got enough information to go be a good doctor. <laughs> and um, so I went to – I did things in that order. And it was um, – it was intentional. I saved medicine for last because I knew how long the process was and that I probably wouldn't want to go back and add on those other things after residency. Yeah. Right. It, it proved to be useful. I mean, medicine is the most regulated industry in the country and there are very few people that, that speak both languages and even fewer that seem to be um, focused on efficiency and transparency, at least the way I always you know, tend to look at things. So it's been, it was a, it was a useful detour and I'm glad I did it. And it's, and it's fun to put out all that legal research on DPC Frontier. Right. Um, yeah. And actually I didn't even mention that in the bio, but you run the DPC Frontier and I've talked a number of times on the show that if people are looking for a direct primary care practice or concierge practice, uh, one of probably the best site or the most inclusive site that I've, that I'm aware of is the, the mapper site that you have at the dpcfrontier.com. And so if people want to, you know, find a place near them, that's usually a good place. Or if you certainly have a, you know, uh, have a practice, it's a good way to get it sort of known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. It started part of a, when I was still a resident in 2014, I started putting it together as part of a research project I was doing at the Robert Graham Center. Ah, so it was a, it was a research project that, that made you set up the site initially. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I started aggregating all this information and I was already handling all kinds of random legal questions from folks. And I thought, you know, this would be a lot more efficient if I just put the information out there on website format. So one thing led to another and I kind of threw up the structure and I've just been adding to it uh, ever since. If I get a question that's not already answered there, I try and find a way to answer it online. And then I just reference that in the, in the email response often. One of the questions I've had as someone who never went to law school, obviously, is uh, when you go to law school and you study for three years, you obviously have some sort of, uh, you can 
pick your sort of field of study or where your your emphasis is going to be. What did you did you like pick health policy for or health law or something like that when you were in law school with the intention of going to medical school afterwards? That's a good question. I mean, when I first started law school, I didn't necessarily tell them I planned to go right into med school. I think they would have thought I was completely crazy if I'd said that day one. <laughs> um, I did pick up as many health law electives as I could, but you really don't have you don't have a major in law school the way you do uh, pick where you pick majors in undergrad. At, at where I went to West Virginia University. And I think most schools in the country, your first year is pretty well set. You really don't pick a single class, at least we didn't. And then everything beyond that, with a few caveats and a few categories that you have to cover, is mostly elective. Um, People are surprised when I tell them that income tax is not a required course in law school and that it's not even tested on the bar exam. Um, But, you know, apart from a few areas like patent law, where actually people saw my chemistry background and they, and they all thought I was going to go into patent law because you don't have very many chemistry majors in law school. Right. And, and, and there is a separate patent bar and people who do that work, uh, they have plenty of it. But um, obviously I was more interested in healthcare and I, I took as many electives as I could. I even took, I took summer classes. I took winter break classes and that's how I got through <laughs> law school a little faster than usual. Um, and, and most of the electives I took over those breaks, oddly enough, were in healthcare. So it worked out. Yeah. And well, and I suppose, you know, when you're looking at law school's three years and so, you know, you've already got seven years of medical training after starting from medical school through residency. Anything you do to shorten those times, obviously, is advantageous. What, what did you do for your business degree? Because there you definitely, you definitely, um, you know, specialize in some sort of field of, of business. So what did you choose with the MBA? Mm-hmm. Um, well, when I was in MBA curriculum at University of Kentucky, I took extra electives in um, in health administration. They had a an, M, a an MHA degree that they offered as well. So any electives I had there, I usually took MHA courses and I was hearing from, you know, we had hospital CEOs and all kinds of guest lecturers that were in. And, uh, looking back on it there, I mean, most of those classes were pretty frustrating <laughs> because they all, they all talked about the system as it is and nobody seemed to at least my professors, unfortunately, didn't seem to be looking at anything too innovative. Right. You have to learn what's broken before you can fix it sometimes, unfortunately. Well, right. I mean, and it's, you have to, it's just like medical school, right? You have to know what, what normal is before you can diagnose what abnormal is. So clearly if you have, you know, a healthcare system that you think is broken, you have to know how it's working before you can figure out, you know, how to fix it. Right. Mm-hmm. So obviously you were, you're prescient in the sense that you were in a resident and you were looking at DPC. So you had you planned on that even when you were in medical school? How did you find out about it and how did you end up in, did you go straight into direct primary care, I guess, right after your residency? I, I got in an argument with one of my law school classmates before I ever started medical school um, <laughs> about what would later be known as direct primary care. And I really don't think it was broadly uh, discussed with that phrase back in 2008 when I was arguing about it. But um, that was the year I finished law school and the year I started medical school. So I knew going into it that I wanted to do something like that. Um, uh-huh. And it wasn't totally committed to family medicine versus internal medicine. But the more I looked at both groups, you know, family medicine was more outpatient focused and more natural at DPC. But um, in going into med school, yeah, I kind of knew I wanted to do something like that. And and there's really um, no place, I don't think, at least in the medical system as it's currently constructed, that gives you more freedom than being a, a family physician in a DPC setting. You sure. Know, there, are, there are lots of areas of medicine where you have kind of limited flexibility these days. You know, uh, That's why I think Keith Smith, who does anesthesia, has impressed people so much with, his, with what he's done in Oklahoma City because anesthesia is not one of those areas where people think of, oh, yeah, you got a lot of autonomy. Most people are, are hospital employees and they don't see a way out. If you're an ER physician, it's pretty hard to, you know, to ditch the ER setting and try and start your own standalone ER, which is almost impossible, but they do certainly work in urgent care settings. So there are some areas that lend themselves to more freedom than others. And and family physician as a DPC was about as free as I think I could see things. 
Yeah, if you look at the market, it's it's certainly easier as someone who's at, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, at the bottom, you know, as far as the, the, the cost of care, right? I mean, if you're going to see a special, like a neurosurgeon, you have to have a tremendous amount of infrastructure and capital investment to have, be a neurosurgeon. You can't, you have to have right. operating rooms and, you know, Microsoft. You could be a family physician or internal medicine physician, and you can operate with very little overhead. Uh, and, and obviously, that lends you the more opportunities to find a patient base too, are people who can afford your services since your services aren't going to be tremendously expensive. Mm-hmm. I'm an anesthesiologist. And so, although I would say that we are not uh, necessarily all hospital employees, we are certainly bound in many ways to hospitals and the systems and the way which they conduct their business. I mean, Keith is unusual mm-hmm. in that he set up his own surgery center and, you know, he was able to sort of create his own system. But even that is not easy, right? Like you mentioned, right. it's, it is it is complicated. There's a large capital investment. You've got to you have operating rooms. You've got to have all the sorts of equipment. And I mean, there's certainly, even if you're outside the third-party payer system, you are still definitely within the regulatory network of OSHA and uh, mm-hmm. you know the FDA and all those other uh, alphabet soup uh, agencies. And so it's, you know, it's a big, it's a big venture <laughs> to, right. to try and I, I agree with you 100% on the overhead piece. I think the overhead for DPC is, is, is pretty low. I mean, some, some groups choose to make it higher, but you'll see people quote anywhere from uh, as low as maybe even 20,000, clear up to 200,000 or, or much more, depending on where you buy physical structure. The, the lowest overhead group historically, I think, and, and even more so with the internet age is psychiatry, right? I mean, right. all they need is a laptop. They don't even need an office. They can just do everything over telemed. And um, if you look back at the records about physicians opting out and doing things on a private cash pay basis, I think that's why psychiatry, at least historically, was near the top in terms of volume of people doing that because it was so easy. Um, but the other reason I like family medicine is just because it's, it's sort of easier to market because we're used to dealing with the undifferentiated complaint. Right. And, <laughs> right. And if we if we would sort of step out and, and and lead this process, I think the more you see DPC grow, the more you see cash transparency grow throughout the system because we're the ones who are, you know, we and we should be the ones knocking on everybody else's door, knocking on pick any specialist, right? And we should be the ones poking them and saying, Hey, what's your cash pay price? Because I got a cash pay patient for you. Right. Well, and I've talked to a number of people who are I would say not in any way um, in, in sort of the non-traditional mode of providing care and they are they're presented with people who are who have non-traditional ways of paying right the cash pay base and they and they are they recognize that it's something that they have to address and you know there's certainly their patients there and the more those patients there are the more likely they're going to create a market whether they had ever planned on that or not and I think, you know, mm-hmm. even for like with Keith Smith, we'll talk about how even his surgery center in Oklahoma, people may not even go to his surgery center, but they take the prices quoted there and then go to their local hospitals and, and can use them as sort of leverage for, you know, for getting lower prices and say, well, I can just fly to Oklahoma City. Why don't you just do my gallbladder here for $5,000 or whatever it might be? Right. And so, and so you're going to, and, and I know uh, it's funny, I have a DPC doc here in Grand Rapids and we don't have a huge DPC presence, but we do have some and it's growing, which I think is probably the case most places in the country and I keep getting questions from her because of course I know all these surgeons like you know if she needs a surgery for one of her patients how does mm-hmm. you know who to contact and so I will have to I know a number of surgeons and so I'll, I'll ask you know, the very especially specialist who I know and just mm-hmm. you know today she was asking me about a urology procedure and it's interesting because well not surprising maybe not that interesting but that it's much easier to talk to the groups that are private versus the ones that are employed as far as finding cash price. And so it shows definitely the value of having independent physicians available within your area, which is not always the case, I suppose, in some places. Right. I would agree. Do you, you know, you're in a very, well, you're in a very rural area. I mean, all of Wyoming is primarily, I mean, I know you have some large hospital systems, I imagine, but we were talking before we started and we're talking about cities of 60,000 or like the big metropolis in the town. So what kind of, are you setting for you finding specialists for your patients, how do you do that? Do you have, is there always an expectation that you have to go to Omaha or Denver or Boise or something like that? Or I mean, how does that work for you? There is an expectation of increased travel, I think. And that goes for a lot of rural America, not just Wyoming. Um, Wyoming's neat in that a lot of the population is, 
is heavier at the state borders anyway. Um, there's some statistics that would kind of surprise people. We've got several hospitals that I think are, are decent size in the state, but there's not a single NICU in the entire state. Oh. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, you know, you get groups like, you know, Cheyenne is only an hour and a half from Denver. Um, if you go to the western part of the state, Evanston, it's only, you know, it's a little over an hour from Salt Lake City. So there tends to be these these patterns where people are used to driving certain places. But I think um, in some ways it's a mixed bag. I mean, if you're in a, if you're doing DPC in a rural setting, then your patients, I think, already expect more of you in terms of broad scope because they don't want to travel unless they need to. And unlike, uh, you know, a suburbia or, or an urban setting where there's a, a, you know, specialist all over the place and they're maybe more likely to sort of self-refer straight to dermatology for their rash, uh, in these settings, dermatology is an hour and a half away, so they want you to deal with it if you can. And um, I think that pressure is a good thing in DPC. But the other thing that happens is people, people who live here are used to driving. And so, I, you know, we'll pursue you know, uh, you pursue a price transparent contract with a variety of places that, you know, if you're in um, Baltimore, you're probably not calling groups in Washington, D.C. to see what they charge for an MRI. Right. Because your patients are going to, you're going to look at you like, what, you want me to drive all the way down there? Right. Um, but, but in Wyoming, that's common. You know, we might call, we might, you know, we call Denver, we call Fort Collins, we call any number of these places and we say, all right, here's your price here, here, and here. And maybe you do want to drive an extra hour to save two hundred dollars. Sure. You were already planning a trip there anyway. So that that that's done. And I think it'd be it'd be more advantageous for for even the Baltimore DC example I gave. You know, go ahead and do that because you'd be surprised. Your patients are willing to travel to save a buck, and it does give you leverage because every time you pick up that phone and talk to talk to a specialist or whoever, you can, you know, bounce more of these options off of them and it's what stimulates competition. Sure. And I guess the one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, uh, and goes to the price transparency, is there there been a lot of there been a lot of physicians I've seen online who have been very excited about the Trump administration's push for the posting of hospital prices and um, I guess for procedures and for stays and and just be greater greater transparency. Can you tell me what you you have a background not only as a physician but obviously with the the legal degree and your general counsel for a number of groups kind of walk through what transparency these rules will actually do and what they won't do. And, and I guess, you know, where you think the, the benefits and the maybe, I don't know about negatives, but certainly the, the problems with that might, they might pose. Mm -hmm. So the, I think the problem sort of bird's eye view is that the devil's in the details, and in order to get this stuff passed, the hospitals will argue that they need to make it easier to comply with, and I think the temptation is going to be, okay, yeah, we'll give you a charge master, and it's going to be fake high prices, and we're going to bury it on our website in a place that's hard to find. Right. So the, the, as far as I know, the proposal is going to require them to release a gross charge, which is kind of that charge master price. And supposedly where, where the rubber meets the road is maybe they're going to have them release some de-identified minimum and maximum negotiated charges uh, without naming the payer. And that's where I expect there to be a lot of litigation because for years, Blue Cross, Cigna, Aetna, they've all argued that the price is a trade secret. Right. Nobody else can have it. And they've had ridiculous terms in those contracts that say things like, you can't charge anybody else a lower price or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that stuff, they're going to litigate because it just, it ruins their business model. And I have no idea where that's going to come out. I'm I'm not too optimistic that, that, we're going to get the real transparency we want um, through any kind of executive order or act out of Congress as much as they might try. The, the I think the only way we're going to routinely get a real price is to, when patients are routinely asking what's the price. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which, which is what happens in the other part of the market. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, I, 
there have been several efforts at this kind of thing at the state level, and they've never led to anything dramatic as far as I know. Yeah, I think just to, to back up, because I, I always say the demographics in my show are about 50% physicians and 50% the lay public. Uh, people may be affiliated with healthcare, but are just sort of interested in it. And so some of the terms we just use are ones that would not uh, people would not understand. So when you say a charge master, this be this is sort of like a list of all the prices of every single thing that might occur in the hospital. Every you know medication you might get, you know a night stay in the ICU versus a night stay in the step down unit versus a night in the ventilator, or whatever. And you can have some you can imagine this gigantic list of just all these things that could that could happen while you're in the hospital, whether it's a surgery mm-hmm. or a medication. And the hospital just will post some price there, and it could be. I mean, that would be, I don't know how long that document would be, but it'd be hundreds, if not thousands of pages, I would imagine. <laughs> right. And, and so the likelihood of you looking and saying, oh, you know, if I need to go to the hospital for, you know, my, get my gallbladder out, how much is it going to be? It'd be almost, it'd be, it would not almost be impossible. It would be impossible to know how much you would be by looking at those, those charges. And also, as you mentioned, those are gross charges. Those are the charges that the hospital would, those are sort of like the rack rates. I've talked about this in the last right. episode. Where they're not the, real, they're not real charges, right? It's just right. They're, they're fake prices and they're they're sticker prices. Nobody would really pay. And and as you said, that you know we referenced Keith Smith earlier. The nice thing they do is is what everybody should do, which is they bundle the price, right? Because when patients thinking about a total knee replacement, they're not thinking about the thirty CPT codes that are included in that. <laughs> they're thinking how much does all of this cost when it's added up, and the fact that there might be a variant of 10 CPT codes that could be plugged and played depending on how the procedure goes. That's not something that's known to most patients. So if, if they go, if they have one or two codes and they go to this charge master on a hospital website, number one, they're guessing that they're going to have the right code and that they're, that they have all the right codes. So they might think that a procedure is only going to be 10 grand when in fact there were 10 other buried codes in there and, and the hospital is going to charge them 50. Yeah, and if anyone thinks it's easy to figure this out, there are people who are trained to be coders. <laughs> it takes many years. Any people who are certified, it takes many years of experience to get really good at it. And even then, uh, mistakes are made and the wrong codes are placed. And or you could change one term uh, in the you know you could bilateral versus just a single side or you know with or without contrast. If just for some examples in imaging, that changes the code and then it changes the price. And so. It would be, like I said, it would be impossible for someone to look at one of those charges. The other thing you touched upon, I think, is real. It's interesting, and not one that I had ever thought of it before. But you mentioned that they, the law would say that they have to show the maximum minimum, and so this is sort of a way of having the the hospital have to say, well, the the least we accept is for this, and the most we accept is this, based on our contracts we have with our twenty seven, let's say, insurance payers, both government and, and commercial. But mm-hmm. we we're just not going to say who it is, right? That's sort of the. Um, but those insurance companies, they don't know what the other companies are paying either, right? And so it, they're, like you said, they're all sort of trade secrets. And, right. Uh, and it's supposed to be. They all reference Medicare and Medicaid because those are the only public prices for each code. Right. Uh, it's interesting. I think I feel like Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan is actually published, and it's. Uh, but maybe it's maybe it's not. Maybe it's just sort of public. Hmm. Uh, I feel like it is for anesthesia charges because they say, well, we just have a rate. <laughs> this is just the rate. There's no negotiating this rate uh, when it comes to, and it's different. For, depends on what side of the state you're on. Um, but anyway, that's some, that's something entirely. That's a really strong arm negotiating tactic. But, well, when uh, you control most of the market, right, you can, you have yeah. the, the power. And, and I talked about this in my last episode, you know, if you're, if you have a small portion of the market, you have very little leverage and the, the providers, the physician groups, they can sort of dictate the prices. If it's the other way around, then it's obviously the other way around. And now the insurance company can sort of dictate the the prices and just, you know, this is what you're going to get. Enjoy it. <laughs> you better like it. I will I will say if, if people are looking for an example of kind of what things should look like, I've got, and it's linked on, I've got a price transparency page on DPC Frontier. So it's under the resources tab and then you click price transparency. And, and there is a hospital that's doing what everybody should do already, believe it or not. And it's, uh, St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, they have what they call a price checker feature. Huh. And it's got a simple little search box, and you can type in there and, and look at a variety of categories from procedures to imaging to lab services, and they actually do give you a price. But I've not seen any other hospital system do that. 
Yeah, and the um, it, it's interesting, and it, people never believe me when I talk to them, tell them this, but you know, the hospitals were never designed to figure out the cost of anything. <laughs> and, right. And it is a it is a model that if I don't think you have to be in business to just say, well, that's how do you have a business where you don't know how much things cost? Like, how could you even provide? It, how could you even run anything? How would you know how much? And mm-hmm. and I will see, and hospital systems have a lot of problems. Part of the problem they have with transparency is they don't know how much things cost. And you might think that's impossible, but there are so many people involved in the care. And then it's the a matter of how do you attribute the care, the the services to whatever you know, the surgery. And I'll give you a, a brief example. So as I since I'm in the OR all the time, I always think of surgical examples. But let's say you get your gallbladder. Well, I can. They, the hospital very know, well knows exactly how much supplies they use, how much you know anesthesia gas, how much time it takes in general, how much labor and personnel are involved there. But the thing they never are able to really account for is how much you charge for for the hospital bed, for the people cleaning the bed, people at the facility, the advertising, the market, the overhead. Like how much of that do you attribute to that one surgery? And so it's it's really hard for them to to sort of figure out really how much something costs because there's so many other ancillary services and parts of that process that mm-hmm. and and the way the hospitals are designed is they're generally very um uh i what's the term i suppose uh siloed in that sense that there's you know pharmacy yes. is their own department and you have the laboratory's own department so they all have their own budgets and so they all sort of fight over you know that what their charges are and so they can easily mm-hmm. make have savings in pharmacy but at the expense of like tremendous over overages in laboratories or something like that and so I like the word fight because they pretty much expect to fight. They expect yeah. to fight with Medicare. They fight with Medicaid. They fight with the insurers and then cash pay patients. Uh, I don't think anymore because you see so many stories, but at least for a while, we're surprised that the hospitals were fighting with them. It's, it's just, it's what they do. They, they, uh, you know, they incentivize these upcodings and uh, these missteps and anytime they misstep, it's always on the high range, not on the low range. And then they expect you to catch it, point it out, and and litigate it with them. And I think too few patients uh, historically have done that. And we really shouldn't be um, so so wary of of pushing back on hospital pricing. And, and certainly in the ER setting, you know, all those things. I, I tell people this when I speak at conferences, especially for for patients of DPC physicians. The, whatever contract you signed when you got to the ER was under duress. It's an adhesion agreement. It's not enforceable. <laughs> And you can litigate your way to fair market value in small claims court after the fact. You know, don't pay that ridiculous hospital bill. You do not have to pay that high price. Can you explain uh, the the part where you're talking about the litigation for the trade secrets? Because I'm very curious of the legal implications of that. And and I mean, anytime you talk about legal implications, you're talking about suddenly years and delay of implementation of whatever plan it might be. So that, uh, as you said, executive orders can be you know returned and and, and certainly if not followed but through the courts. So what exactly, what would Blue Cross's, if there's, if everything's de-identified, meaning there, there's just a price there, no one really knows who it is outside of the person, outside of the entity who's contracted with the hospital, how, mm-hmm. how would they have a right to sue the hospital or whoever, I mean, or I don't know if they sue the state or the federal government, I'm not sure who the, 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 the parties would be involved. So the... <clears throat> Well, the way it would work is the hospital would be, I presume, would be, be the one mandated by this um, executive order to release the price. Right. The hospital would turn and say to the insurer, hey, uh, we're being mandated to release this price that you view as a trade secret. And then the insurer is given an opportunity to, to tell a judge why that can't happen. And um, this, is the, this is a common... I don't know all the inside mechanisms. I'm not a litigator myself, yeah. but it's common in the, you know, the most, the historically the place you see this a lot is under FOIA requests. Okay. So Freedom of Information Act, um, and it actually happens in the DPC community too, with certain employers and certain city governments, you might have, let's say you have several DPC practices uh, in Orlando, Florida that want to work with the city and provide them DPC care. And they all respond to an RFP a request for proposal and then one group wins it and the other ones that didn't get it want to know why they lost when uh. they think their price and quality was better so what do they do they submit a FOIA request to the city and the city turns to the winner and all the other bidders and says hey um this person wants to see all the information 
and you submitted these prices, these plans, these protocols, which were confidential and proprietary to you, and you're given a chance to sort of say to a judge why certain things should be held out. And so it's going to be the same thing with the, when the insurer is talking to a hospital. They're going to say, it, well, while the FOIA example is a little bit different, they're going to say, look, this is why our price can't be released. Yeah. Well, that makes, that makes sense. I can, I can definitely see the, right. And we've had that it's as a group, we have to negotiate with hospitals. And so if our, the terms of our contract were seen, our competitors may come and say, Oh, well now we know where, how we can undercut some service or charge a different rate or we can see what you're, it sort of obviously gives you unfair, gives your competitors an unfair advantage to know sort of where to beat you. Right. 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 Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes more sense than I guess I can see. And I can definitely see how the insurance companies would have that, right? And that would, and you can imagine 50 state courts, we have these things working their way through, or maybe even on the federal level, or I don't, yeah, that would, this one should be federal, but yeah, it would be a mess. Yeah. Um, To to sort of change tracks a little bit, you know, you mentioned your practice. You also are, you're located by one of the correctional hospitals. And so you do, you practice correctional health. Can you yes. describe briefly what that is? I mean, I suppose people know, you know, corrections, you know, prisoners, but what, what uh-huh. is that and how is that different than sort of regular family medicine, let's say? Um, so correctional medicine, at least for me, means being a prison physician as opposed to a jail physician. And at least in Wyoming, our prisons are pretty small. And so it's, it's much, much more similar to DPC than I ever thought it would be. And when I first started doing this after residency in 2015, um, I, I didn't know I would like it this much and that it would be uh, this interesting. So the main prison that I'm at, uh, that I was at today in Torrington, it's about 600 to 700 patients in the entire facility. Um, we've got, we've got what most people would think of as kind of a step down unit. We can do dialysis on site. We do x-rays on site. Um, and I do broad scope family medicine. I don't do any coding at the time of the visit. Often my visits are 30 to 60 minutes. Uh, we do as much as we can here. Um, we have a direct line of communication with patients. They don't have email, but they do have uh, old fashioned letters and, and it's literally a captive audience. So um, it's, it's not difficult to see people when they need to be seen because they're all right here. <laughs> right. And, and it's, since I'm in a prison, I really don't, deal much with a lot of the things people think of in a jail setting, which is much more like an urgent care or ER. So it's very rare that I have anybody going through any kind of withdrawal. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. What we do really well is chronic, chronic care management, chronic condition management, which is, I think, which is the most important part of DPC. Uh, a lot of younger patients sort of see DPC and they think, oh, I'm not going to have to pay to go to the urgent care. And that is a goal. Um, not a promise, at least not if they've drafted their contract correctly, but you know, the real value is in the chronic conditions. It's in the well-managed diabetic or um, myasthenic gravis or pick any number of things that, yeah, that sure. are chronic management. So what, um, it's similar. So I guess my question then would be when it comes to correctional health, um, why direct primary care? I mean, it, it, traditionally I would think that we just hire a, a physician to come by and see people. How is it different with you versus, I imagine, what the sort of the, the usual method of taking care of, of prisoners? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think, like I say, I probably lucked out being in Wyoming because it's so small. Um, the the nurses know the patients, and and I'm I should clarify they don't they don't you know uh, pay me monthly fees the way you do in a t- typical DBC setting. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm salaried when I'm here. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, but uh, it, it, it works because of the size of it. You know, the EMR we have is nothing spectacular. Um, if, if we had 5,000 patients at one site and we had 20 physicians here, then it wouldn't have the same effect because there'd be too much round robin. There wouldn't be this efficiency and, and the sort of a long-term relationship like you want to see in the typical DPC practice. And because we're so small, we get that effect. And when you started your career, I mean, you clearly were – pointed towards medicine, your, it was, you say your father was a pathologist? Uh, uh, my mom's a pathologist. My dad's a family physician. Okay. So your mother's a pathologist. So I imagine the stories, at least your impression of medicine was very different hearing from your mother and your father, right? Because your mother was, 
hospital based almost certainly right and then your father wasn't so what sort of things do you remember growing up that they would complain about and things you thought oh i'm absolutely going to avoid you know x y or z hmm um it would be, you know, my, my dad did a lot of public health work at a local public health department, and he would, he would want to treat any number of patients a certain way and, and, and maybe be told, that, you know, there'd be some sort of regulation in the way or some sort of insurance coverage determination in the way. Um, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm 35 now, so I, I don't remember the details at this point. <laughs> you know exactly what they complained about back when I was 12 and 14 and all this stuff was being imprinted but um, it, it was all centered around you know they can't do what's best for the patient because of any number of people who uh, put a policy in place and really didn't think it through and didn't think about what the impacts were going to be and so when you look at your all your ventures they sort of it strikes me as they all sort of have a common theme in that you're operating in a way that you don't have as many people telling you what you can and can't do. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and there are certainly, you might scratch your head and say, well, how in the world, how, how are you doing anything in the prison? And I do, you know, there is an approval process for, for when patients are sent off site from a security standpoint, from a medical standpoint. And, and some of that takes some getting used to, but it's not, you know, I don't have this anywhere near, the amount of um, paperwork that I had just for regular work that I did in residency where, where we were getting, you know, uh, prior auths for, for generic medications, even generic over the counters on Medicaid patients in any number of kind of crazy scenarios. And you, you don't see that. Um, you don't see that in correctional medicine, at least not where I do it. And you don't see it in DPC in the onsite clinic space with proactive MD. Uh, you don't, you know, it's not something that's common to DPC and, and, you know, any number of DPC physicians will find themselves being asked to do prior auths from time to time. And, and to those people, I would ask them to look up a video by Greg Zydiak uh, about how to passively, aggressively deal with prior auths. Uh, it's quite entertaining. And if everybody did that, we'd be done with them. Is uh, that where he wants to charge people money for his time? Yes. Yes. He, <laughs> um, he basically tells the insurance company, you're wasting my time. This isn't about patient care. And if you want me to waste my time, then you're going to pay for it. And um, eventually they, you know, he has these fax wars back and forth with them and then they kind of give up and, and he doesn't have to, he doesn't get them anymore. So. One of the, uh, one of the uh, physicians I talked, Dr. Hunt, who was a faculty at university of Virginia, I believe it was, did the same thing. And then his, his faculty, I, the Dean or someone <laughs> said, we don't do that. You're not allowed to do that anymore. Uh, but he, <laughs> He tried that for a while, which uh, didn't earn him any uh, kudos, and eventually he ended up leaving the university. I think, but yeah, it, well, that's a shame. I mean, if you know, if everybody did that, it wouldn't be a problem anymore. And and the, it forces insurance companies to admit what it really is, and it's a way to waste your time. And they hope they waste enough of your time that you don't request that anymore. You know, they don't want you to care for the patient in that particular way. And it would be refreshing if they would openly admit it. Yeah, right. I guess it'd be a yeah small victory. Um, with uh, with your relationship with Horizon Health and and Proactive, are they similar? Are they different? What sort of what sort of things you're doing with those ventures? So in Horizon, that's that's the entity that has the contract here in Wyoming. So I'm an employee. I see. And, okay. You know, I can. I, I hope. Uh, give them ideas at least at a local level on how to how to do things and how to make the process a little better. Um, but with Proactive MD, I'm an officer in that company, and it's an on-site DPC-focused uh, clinic. Uh, and so we have practices in multiple states: um, South Carolina, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, <clears throat> and and they are historically, although this is going to be changing some, they've historically been. Uh, on-site for large employers, and we're going to have some that we call near-site, which, which you would think of more as a community DPC clinic. So in those situations, you have employers that have been getting messed over by the system, and rather than having scattered or, or minimal primary care, they want to just bring it on-site. And there have been entities out there for decades that have had on-site clinics for large employers, 
but a lot of them have been kind of glorified band-aid stations or they've limited themselves uh, strictly to workers' comp issues, which is just not very helpful at really providing ongoing chronic care and really making patients live longer, stay at work longer, and, and reducing healthcare spend for the employer. I see. And so you're, I mean, you're basically, in a sense, sort of franchising direct primary care, right? I mean, to across the country. Um, I would steer away from the word franchising. I guess, you know, if you're, if, if the main I, question is why would an employer um, do, you know, work with Proactive and D versus a traditional practice, uh, number one, I have no problem regardless of what they do. I just want them to embrace DPC. But yeah. The reason they would often look to Proactive and D or somebody similar is because um, they want a bunch of data. And data has been a problem in medicine, I should say, broadly for a long time because it's been a garbage in, garbage out issue. They're measuring the wrong widgets and um, their efforts to measure widgets only make us more inefficient since a lot of it's coding based. Right. And DPC is literally trying to rebuild that, you know, a new widget system, if you will, a new way of tracking things that doesn't get in the way and also measures things that are worth measuring. And that's both from a quality standpoint and from a cost standpoint. And um, that's where I think we do some things differently, at least if proactive, obviously I'm biased. And, yeah. and we present that information back to the employer and to the broker to prove that what we did was what made the difference. Because if you don't track some form of data that you can present back, when there is savings at the end of the year, the broker who may be antagonistic to your efforts will be happy to take all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you have to be able to point that out. And it's happened to a lot of sort of standalone DPC practices that were relying solely on uh, downstream data. It, it gets used against them in bizarre ways. Could you give me an example of that? Because, you know, we always hear big data in medicine and, you know, it's going to change everything. And I think we've seen that to this point, it's done nothing <laughs> uh, as far as most practices. Uh, what what sort of examples do you have of, of data that you that would be actionable that you say, hey, this is a metric we have collected and it's not, you know, taking tons of your time to, to gather that proves your value to an employer, you know, some large employer? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's very, very simple things that anybody could do, uh, starting with tracking your touch points with the patient. So it wouldn't just be in-person visits, it'd be text, emails, phone calls. And if you have software that does that easy on the back end and doesn't require anything from you, I see. that's one way to sort of prove it. And, and, it, and that comes across independent of any kind of code, because mm-hmm. the, the trick that, that some DPC practices can fall into is that that you'll have a broker who says, well, you don't really need a code. We just need these, you know, we just need one or two codes from you just to know you exist. And then they compare the one or two codes you submit to the 10 codes that were submitted in an effort to mark up things and get a bunch of payment from some position across town. And they argue that a lot more care was delivered over there than what you did. I see. So you have to, you have to have that, sort of switch over and, and you have to be able to defend yourself in, in creative ways outside just the coding system. Right. So the example would be like we've, we to handled four emails and three phone calls from this patient over the last four months. And that was, that would be four urgent care visits two years ago when, before you had our service. And so the amount of savings you had is tremendous or, you know, right. That's sort of, right. that'd be sort right. of your, yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Stuff should be, you know, it, it should be the downstream stuff because that's more objective, right? Anybody can sort of say you had an email and maybe you didn't, or click a button when you and say sure. you did something you didn't, which of course happens all the time with people's review of systems and their regular EMRs, which is kind of insane. Um, so that you know, if if you want to get around that, then the way you you look at uh, system usage over time, but that takes years. You know, the first the first year or two when people join a DPC practice, especially when patients sort of select them on their own, it's not because they're really healthy, right? You don't have some, you know, a 39-year-old with no medical problems beating down your door trying to have an office visit. It's somebody right. with an uncontrolled chronic condition that's been neglected by the regular system. So when they're first there, you do a lot of extra work. And, and, and then once you, you know, uh, fix, for lack of a better word, fix the problem, then, then they reach a, a cruise control state 
and, and you don't see as much or hear as much from them, presumably. Right. And uh, you, if you're all you're doing is looking at this short term downstream claims data, you might see it go up briefly, but long term, it'll go down. You just have to trend it long enough. So finally, I'd like to, to switch again and go and talk about your your DPC Frontier site. Uh, it sounds like it was originally a research project where, you, and then you just, it sort of became a housing for all the sort of things, your, your thoughts and, and useful resources you thought people who are in direct primary care might find, or people who are interested in finding out more about it. Can you briefly go into what's at DPC Frontier? And then, um, well, let's just start there first, I guess. Okay. Um, so I originally built it to be a physician facing website that would, allow me to quickly answer legal questions with almost without being asked them. Um, so there's a, there, there are federal issues and state issues. There's a states tab with, with every state has its own little uh, website. And as I find, uh, you know, a particular problem to the state of Massachusetts or Maine or Illinois or whoever, then I put it up on that page so that hopefully those physicians from those states will find it. Uh, on the regulations tab, there's a lot of, uh, federal issues, and then the resources tab has uh, academic articles that are highlighted. It has lots of CME lectures, many of which are sort of open access on YouTube that physicians can find to review, um, forums that I give away, either mine or that I found elsewhere that I can link to. Uh, the About page has a little bit about me and about uh, Colin McDonald, who's an excellent uh, MIT-trained MIT engineer who's done some a lot of work on the mapper. And, and for the patients that are listening in, really the, the thing that I have that's most useful to them, unless they're just sort of a nerd on some of this other stuff, is going to be the mapper. And um, on the, the mapper page, when you click on that, it's got a box at the top where you can type in your city or zip code, however you want to search, and it'll zoom in and you've got dots for each practice. And a green dot means that all that practice does is DPC. If they're hybrid, it means that they're probably doing some fee-for-service, usually traditional insurance-based and DBC. And if they're blue, uh, it means that they're on-site for a large employer, and they may or may not have the ability for you to sort of sign up independently. Um, and so each of these dots, when you click on it, it'll take you to a more detailed uh, DBC mapper page that hopefully the practice filled out. They might have videos. They might have hours uh, and their prices listed, hopefully. And you, so you can sort of see things at a bird's eye view and quickly assess which DPC practice you might want to join. And then there'll be a link, of course, to the practice website as well, which should certainly have all that information available. Right. Uh, what is your sense in the direct primary care movement and the growth? I mean, I think my impression is that it's growing quickly, but as someone who's just only looked at it for the past few years, certainly when I started the show a year and a half ago, uh, it's grown quite a bit just in Michigan, but even you know, even if you double, it's still a tiny fraction of the amount of actual practice and if, uh, physicians who are practicing in the state. But uh, I know you had sort of mentioned before, maybe it's an email, that you would almost expect an exponential growth at, on this movement because people would see, both patients and physicians would see the benefit of having a more honest transaction, simple, you know, less paperwork, less sort of middlemen involved in the in the process. And yet we're seeing more what you, I think we're describing more linear like growth. If I had to estimate it, I'd say it's anywhere from 200 to 300 practices per year is what it seems to be doing. I do think the, the, the rate is increasing and it's going to become a little bit more exponential, but it, it has been more linear. I, I think when I first put it together in 2014, I found about 250 or 300 and and some of those practices fell out over time. There were certain uh, chains of practices that didn't really pan out, and that can move the numbers kind of wildly when you remove a group like that. Yeah, it's been growing. I think one of the biggest sources of growth is kind of unmeasured in the sense that, as I was talking about earlier, you, you, there are more and more on-site DPC clinics that are not in the mapper because they're not really known. And what used to be kind of band-aid station, urgent care only, or occupational medicine only is being pushed into or towards DPC. And I think that's been a large area of unmeasured growth. And it's been why certain large entities that, that even do things in-house, like Boeing, for example, or Rosen Hotels in Florida, that have kind of done something similar to DPC in-house for decades, 
those those kinds of things are overlooked. But um, my my general summary would be just like with price transparency, as long as patients are asking how much does it cost, there's room for more and more DPC practices to grow. Um, and I and I think they are they're growing. And I've been one place I've been impressed with is actually Texas. There's been a lot of growth in Texas, and that's in in spite of the inability of DPC physicians to dispense medications there, which is a big a hurdle and I think a problematic value add for those physicians. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, certainly one of the benefits of my doc here in town is I can get a lot, I can get medications at slightly above wholesale, which is significantly less than you can get at the pharmacy, even with your insurance discounts, which I say in air quotes, <laughs> but right. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it, that's impressive that it, but I, I think it's in many ways, these, the direct primary care is, it is very a cultural societal sort of, I'm not sure what the right term is, but it's one of those things, as soon as the physicians find out about it and the patients find out about it, then more people are going to be attracted. It's more likely to be successful. And, and so it is probably, it's not surprising that it'd be more regional in some ways as it grows versus sort of a national movement. Yeah, there are, there are pockets where it seems like there's a lot more of it. Denver is a great area for it. Um, see, I would have said Seattle, and I guess I still should say Seattle and Washington generally. They've got a lot of practices in Washington State. Although recently, I'm going to be putting up a post on this in a few weeks. We, there's been some, um, for lack of a better word, just bizarre stances uh, taken by the Washington Insurance Commissioner's Office where I just think that they're misinterpreting their own DPC law. That's problematic, but I, I think those that that conversation will hopefully get corrected later this year. Uh, but at, at any rate, um, I think I guess to the point is that as as you have more and more DPC practices in a certain area, um, it's a, it's a good thing, and I think you get patients asking for it, and then you get more practices open because they're aware of it. So you shouldn't be discouraged. You know, it might, it might sound silly to say this out loud, but I'll just sort of say it this way. I mean, there are probably four or five DPC practices in New York City, and that should not discourage you from opening the sixth practice, right? Um, right. You shouldn't say, well, I need to go to North Dakota because there aren't any DPC practices there yet. Right. I think, you know, there's plenty of patients for everybody, and and um, there, there are areas of the country where you don't have to explain what it is. And not having to explain it means that, people are more willing to join your practice and, and sort of the sales process, if you will, is simpler for the physician because then you're just telling people about your price and your value pretty quickly rather than trying to explain an entirely new concept of care. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, if you were to go some, someplace, I don't know, Mongolia and try and sell burritos, it'd be very difficult because no one's ever heard of them and they've never eaten them before. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you can go to Southern California and you can open a taco stand anywhere and just because people are, it's part of the culture and, people are familiar with it. So they're more likely to try it. Right. Right. Well, I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Where can people find out more? I mean, obviously DPC frontier is probably the go-to place to find out what you're up to. It's, is there a place to follow you on Twitter or in Facebook? Um, sure. I do. I, I do have a Facebook account. I do have a Twitter account. I'm pretty lousy with social media though. <laughs> um, I, you know, I need to I need to do a better job with Twitter, uh, Facebook. I'm just occasionally on and answering answering a few DVC questions for other physicians, but I don't check it maybe once a week. But Twitter is is my my Twitter handle is p h i l s q, and then and that's at phil s q. So it's a play on words. It's a play on my last name. Um, and then uh, of course there's dpcfrontier.com is my website, and my email is phil at dpcfrontier.com. Well, Dr. Eskew, thank you so much for the discussion. Uh, I hope we have a chance for our paths across at some point. Thanks again. Thanks, Dr. Larson. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.